So today we're continuing our series called The Lord's Prayer, where Jesus is teaching us how to pray. And he starts out pretty simply. He tells us that that when you pray, you should recognize the reality of God, our Father who art in heaven. And then he tells us also, you know, when you pray, it's, it's okay to recognize your own needs. Pray for the basics of life. Pray for daily bread. And then he tells us that we should also be mindful of forgiveness, both our need for it and our need to offer it to others in our prayers. So, so our prayer should be, should be filled with an acknowledgement of our need for grace and our need to give grace. And today, he goes even deeper. He, he actually turns the intensity of this teaching on prayer like up to 11. He now starts to talk about some of the dark stuff around us and, and really and truly just some of the, the dark and difficult stuff within us. He talks about temptation. Now, we just read it, but I think it'd be helpful for us to hear it again. In fact, let's read it together. Let's read these words together with one voice. Pray then like this. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What are your greatest temptations? You don't have to say them out loud. That'd be embarrassing for you and for me. But we all have them. What, what are your greatest temptations? Maybe it's, maybe it's for you to just like give over to your anger. Like you just go full hulk. You have to hold back that temptation. Or maybe it's, maybe it's, maybe it's lust. Or maybe it's reckless spending. What is it for you? Uh, we all have those things that, that have like this, this pull on us or, 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 or that push us towards indulging those things. And, and we seem to have this, this knowledge, instinctual knowledge, like in our gut or, or maybe it's just our knowledge of God, that these things, should we indulge them, are not good for us. And yet, even though we know that these things might be outside of God's will for us or just plain not good for us in general, there's still like when we see it, when we, when we have the opportunity to indulge it, there's still this little voice inside of us that says, you know what, it might feel real good though. And besides, you've earned it. So what is it for you? Greatest temptations. Now before we dive into what this means for prayer, I first want to answer a couple common objections to any teaching on temptation and then to, to this teaching on temptation and prayer in particular. Uh, the, two, uh, the two objections are these. Number, number one, there are those who think that any talk of temptation or sin is ultimately unhelpful in this day and age. That it's just another way of the church to try and, try and get control over people's lives. That perhaps it'd be more helpful for us to just talk about how to help people discover their, their passion and their joys and how to pursue those things rather than talk about temptation and its close cousin, sin. The other objection or question that comes up when you talk about this verse in particular is that in this verse, it sounds as though, the way Jesus phrases it, it sounds as though he's saying that God could lead us into temptation, lead us not into temptation. Why, why would God ever do that? Why would he lead us into terrible things? Would God do that? Understandable question. Uh, let me address the, the, the first objection. When Christians talk about sin and they talk about temptation, really, ultimately, what we're talking about are, are boundaries. What we believe is that God has put certain boundaries in place in this world that are, that are good for us to acknowledge and good for us to adhere to. They, they lead to our thriving and our flourishing as members of creation. And when we blow through those boundaries or when we're tempted to ignore those boundaries, it's good for us to admit it. Now, now, whether you're a person of faith or not, you have to admit that, that the world is better 
with boundaries in it. And all types of boundaries exist, from, from rules in your home to policies at your workplace to laws in our government. Boundaries ultimately are good, and if we just forsook all those things and everybody just did what was right in their own hearts, this place would be a mess. Like, imagine for a second that, like, a police cruiser pulls you over on your way home, and uh, you pull down the window and you look at the officer and you say, I know it says to go 45, but, like, I was wrestling with that as I drove down this road, and it just didn't feel true for me or right for me. As I was listening to my spirit, it was like, no, you're a, you're a 65, you're a 70, you're a 75. And I don't want to deny that or reject that, so I just need you to not put your oppressive speed obligations on me. Now, they have a word for people who, who act that way. That word is called arrested. That's the word. <laughs> Boundaries are good. We can't just all follow our own gut when it comes to speed limits, even though some of you do. Or the IRS knocks on your door and they're like, you have not paid your taxes in 10 years. And you're like, I know I should pay my taxes, but that feels like really hypocritical for me because I'm not passionate about giving money to other people or things other than myself. And so I'm just not going to do that. Is that okay with you? No, it's not okay with us. You know what they call people who do that? Politicians. That's what they call them. <laughs> Boom, boom. I'm here all week. <laughs> Boundaries are a good thing. And, and what, when Christians talk about temptation or we talk about sin, what we're talking about is this belief that, that God who made this world, this world that we all agree works better when we recognize the boundaries, he has some explicit boundaries of his own that he gives to his people, that he gives to those who know him and love him. And it's good for us. We flourish when we recognize those things, when we confess, when we've blown through the boundary or we admit when we're tempted to ignore it, that it's good for us to recognize that. That's what we believe. Now, when, when it comes to this verse and the question of, is Jesus telling us that God would tempt us? The answer to that question is no. God does not tempt us towards sin. He does not himself lead us into temptation. In fact, the Bible goes out of its way to expressly say that God does not do this. So, for example, just one of the many places it says this, uh, James chapter 1. Look at James chapter 1, verse 13. It says this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. You know, part of our misunderstanding of this particular phrase is because we, we don't have a knowledge of, of how Hebrew poetry and like first century Palestinian Hebrew prayers worked. There was a certain kind of rhetorical style that was common in Jesus' day where you would say something obviously untrue so that the emphasis would be on the thing that is true. You would say something outlandish so that the emphasis would be placed on the thing that was promised. Uh, there's something kind of similar that happens in our relationships at times. Sometimes in our relationships, we'll say something crazy to the other person we're in a relationship with just so they'll say the thing that is comforting to us. So, for example, not that anyone in this room has ever done this, but sometimes in a relationship, say a married relationship, a wife may out of nowhere look at her husband and say, you better not ever leave me for someone younger and prettier. And you're like, where is this coming from? Of course, I would never do that. I would never do that. You know me, I'd never do that. And we know that, that that statement, don't ever leave me for someone younger and prettier, is just a setup. It's a setup. 
She's saying that to get you to say what? I would never do that. I would never leave you. I promise to love you and cherish you forever. I would never do that. You say the outlandish thing in order to put the emphasis on the promised thing, the true thing. That's kind of what's happening here. Jesus says, pray like this, Father in heaven, lead us not into temptation. Of course he would never. But what will he always do? Oh, deliver us from evil. And that's where the emphasis belongs in this teaching on temptation and prayer. The emphasis belongs on God's promise to deliver his people whenever evil stirs. Now, will we always take him up on the deliverance? No. But does he promise to always offer us a way out and escape, a path to endure it? He does. In fact, I've got a scripture to prove it. Look at this. First Corinthians chapter 10. We read this a minute ago, but it's worth repeating. Paul says this, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to mankind. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. You ever heard people say, well, God won't give you more than, he can hand, more than you can handle? That, that's where they get this from, is from this verse. Now, the problem is that God tends to estimate our ability much greater than we estimate our own. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, I believe that this verse speaks on two levels. <clears throat> One, uh, the, the most plain understanding is that God promises that when you're in the heat of temptation, that he, he will, for his people who are filled with his spirit, he will show you the other options. That's how you know it's a temptation. The reason you know it's a temptation is because you know you shouldn't do it, which means you also know what you should do, which is run. He will provide you a way out. He will make you aware, oh, this could go poorly. Maybe I could do something else. But the other level on which this works is that Jesus Christ, God the Father's own son, he is the way out from under every single temptation because even if and when you fall, Jesus is your entrance back into to bask in mercy and grace for every single one of us who fails in the face of temptation because he endured it. He endured it, and he overcame it, and then he died as if he didn't, and now forgiveness and mercy is yours. So God promises to deliver us. He promises to deliver us. Now, as I, as I read that verse, some of you might be thinking this. Okay, Matt, but, but as, I, as I mature in faith and grow in faith, shouldn't temptation become less of an issue for me? <laughs> no. Spiritual maturity is not is not, I would argue, not sinning less. You, you tend to just sin differently. And, and I would say the height of spiritual maturity is, is not the absence of temptation or even the absence of sin. I would say the height of spiritual maturity is a, an increasingly realistic view of the depth of your struggle with sin and the constant push and pull of temptation and sin in your life. Spiritual maturity is, is like eyes wide open to two things. God's grace is greater than you knew before. And your weakness is more real and more potent than you want to admit. That's what spiritual maturity looks like. 
And as you grow in life, you know, you, you, you learn, you learn the reality of your own human weakness and you learn your re the reality of just how broken the world is around you. And we see this in simple things like, you know, when, when you were younger, you might, you might have two or three drinks or four or 12 when you're out with friends. But now that you're older, you're like, you know, one drink, I'm fun. Three drinks, I am problematic or so I'm told. <laughs> you now know better. You're mature. You know better. Or you, you know that if it's a beautiful Saturday morning and someone knocks on your door at 10 a.m., it is not your neighbor. It is someone trying to save your soul or sell you something. You do not answer it. You know better. Maturity is knowing your own depravity and the depravity of the world around you and being realistic about it. That's what maturity is. And so as we seek to grow in grace, and we, we recognize temptation, we recognize that we'll continue to struggle with it, but that God's love for us is greater than our dysfunction, even though our dysfunction and our struggle with sin and temptation is deep and it is real. And so what would be wise for us to do is with this understanding in tow is as we head towards things that potentially could provide temptation for us, we proactively pray this prayer. Lord, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil before it even gets to a sketchy place. That's maturity. C.S. Lewis once wrote this. He says, dealing with temptation is like motoring. That's the British way of talking about driving a car. Dealing with temptation is like driving a car. Don't wait till the last moment before you put on the brakes, but put them on gently and quietly while the danger is still a good way off. What is your greatest temptation, your greatest weakness? And when was the last time you, in your maturity, you prayed for protection proactively before it got real bad? Now, I want to give you just a couple of things, a couple of scenarios for you to be aware of when, when you are especially vulnerable and it is time for you to take Jesus at his word and pray this prayer, to pray that you would be led away from temptation and delivered from evil as God has promised. Uh, three scenarios in particular. Uh, the first is this. You need to recognize that you are vulnerable when you are performing. Now, I don't mean like on a stage and with jazz hands performing. I mean when you are, you are hungry for acceptance and approval in the eyes of others. And, and there are moments in life where that's very real for us. Like we're, we're starting a new job or we've just started a, a new and important relationship or we're looking for a fresh opportunity and we are hyper aware of how we are being perceived and, and we want to be accepted. And when we are wanting to be accepted, we are wanting to be, to be praised, that, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but you have to understand that that makes us very vulnerable. You know, Jesus, when he was tempted by the devil, the devil took him out into the desert. And the, and, and the devil knew that Jesus was hungry, like he was dying for a piece of pizza or something. And the devil knew that he was hungry and he tempted him with bread, but he tempted him in a particular way. Listen to this. Satan takes Jesus out into the wilderness and he says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. He encouraged Jesus to question his identity and his value, but then to prove it by doing something spectacular that would provide immediate gratification. And of course, Jesus was faithful underneath that temptation, but you and I often are not. 
We want to prove our worth and our identity by doing something in the eyes of other people that will make them applaud us or love us or accept us or receive us, and it provides us some instant gratification. But here's what we have to recognize about ourselves, that we tend to buy into a lie when we're hungry for approval, and the lie is this. If I lower my standards, I will increase my acceptance. If I lower my standards, I can increase my acceptance. And so when you're hungry for approval, you're willing to say things you typically wouldn't say, do things you never would do, and allow things you never would allow because you just, you want other people to need you. And when you are in that place, you are vulnerable. And when you're vulnerable because you're hungry for acceptance or approval, I got a prayer for you. It goes like this. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Second scenario you need to be wary of, or you need to be aware of, is not just when you're hungry for acceptance or approval, but when you are tired. And so some of you are like, oh, like all the time, every day, every hour? No, I'm talking about like when you are, you are deeply depleted, like you are not just physically exhausted, but emotionally, spiritually, mentally exhausted. Uh, when you are tired, you are vulnerable. You ever notice how when kids need a nap, they become the worst version of themselves? You notice this. Like you let a kid stay up till 10 p.m. the next morning. If you let them stay up till 10 p.m., then the next morning they will tie you up and rob you blind. That's what happens. And adults are the same way. When we are deeply fatigued, we tend to become the worst possible versions of ourselves. And some of you, by virtue of all the things that you've been through, you are tired. You're not just tired. You are spent. You are done. You got stuff going on at work. You got stuff going on in, in important relationships at home. And then there's like pandemic stuff and the hyper-politicalization and partisanship that's in, our, in everything now. Like you're just tired from all of it. And I get it. Uh, there, there's, a, there's a famous psychologist, a guy named Richard Baumeister. And, and he coined a term, ego depletion. It's meant to talk about those times when you are beyond tired, you are emotionally depleted. And in those moments where you are deeply, deeply tired, the part of your brain that monitors self-control slows to a crawl. And it's in those moments that you are more likely to eat an extra dessert. It's in those moments that you are most likely to give up on something you're passionate about and just throw in the towel because you don't have anything left. It's in those moments where you're unable to hold yourself back emotionally. You cry at all the commercials, and you get angry about all the things. You're more likely in those moments to find the annoying habits of your family and your coworkers to be crimes against humanity. You want to know why it is you're tempted to call the cops because of how loud your coworker chews? You want to know why that is? It's because you're tired. It's because you need a nap. You need a vacation. You see, when we're running on empty, something critical happens. We, we lose our ability to fight the battles that matter most. And the battles that matter most are the boundaries you've set up in life to protect you. The battles that matter most is the fight to be the kind of person you know you're called to be. The battles that matter most are the values that you carry with you, that you want to uphold and live by. And when you are tired, you can't protect the boundaries. You can't uphold the values. You can't live by the principles. You just blow through the boundaries and give up on those things. And when you're in that place where you're so tired that you're just done, I'm done, I don't care. 
you are vulnerable. And when you're vulnerable, I got a prayer for you. It goes like this. Lead me not into temptation. I am tired. But deliver me from evil. I got one more for you. You need to pray this prayer, not just when you're hungry for the approval of others, not just when you are deeply depleted, but you need to pray this prayer when you are lonely. There's a difference between being alone and being lonely, right? I mean, if you're alone, it means that no one shares your space. And, and I guess the best way to say that, that, that you're lonely is if no one shares your heart. Like there's no one that, that connects with you on a deep level, no one that, that sees you and understands you. You feel alone as a person, even if there are a thousand other people in the room. That's what it means to be lonely. And you were not meant to live life lonely. But when God made all things, he, he created all things in perfection, and he, he established Adam in this world. And, and, and Adam is there, and he's got a perfect relationship with God, a perfect relationship with all of creation. And yet, in the midst of that perfection, God looks at Adam and says, oh, something's still not right. It's not good for him to be alone. It's not good for him to not have someone to, to share his heart and his life with, so someone to value him and need him and to see him and for him to do the same for this other person. That's, that's part of how we're created to be. You see, when we're lonely, we're vulnerable. When we're lonely, there's no one there to check our reasoning. There's no one there to ask us good questions. There's no one there to remind us of what's true, to see the dark and the difficult stuff that's in our heart and go, whoa, what, <laughs> what is that? There's no one there to do that. And when we're that lonely, that no one sees us and knows us, we are vulnerable. And when we're lonely and we're vulnerable, we give in. Some of you are feeling lonely. And it might be just a, a recent thing, like it's just this morning. Or maybe it's a long time thing and it's been for a while now. If you are lonely, you need to recognize that, that we are here and we love you. Reach out to us, but also understand that you are in a particularly vulnerable place. And if you're in that place, I have a prayer for you. It goes like this. Lead me not into temptation. I feel so alone. But deliver me from evil. Now, there are those of you who might be thinking, okay, Matt, well, that, that seems to work. For those moments where I'm in temptation, I can, I can take that and utilize that. Thank you very much, Pastor Matt. But what about, what if, what if you're a person who, for whom temptation is not just a, a sometimes thing, but temptation is an all the time, every day, every waking moment thing? Like, what about that? What should those of us do? And to that, I would say two things. Number one, you need to make the circle of people who understand the temptation that you perpetually struggle with bigger. Don't be alone in that. You need to, to build a chorus of people who see you and know you and understand you and who can help you with that, number one. Number two, from a spiritual perspective, what you need to do if you struggle with perpetual temptation is to find a way to saturate your day-to-day -day existence with with a recognition of God's presence and reminders of his promises. 
There are lots of ways to do this. One of my favorites, I've talked about it before, is, is an ancient practice from the Eastern Christian Church called the Jesus Prayer. Most people now refer to it as a breath prayer. But about a thousand years ago, the Eastern Church, driven by a desire to have a more, a more constant recognition of God's presence and be more deeply anchored in the power of His promises, they developed a practice of, of mumbling a particular phrase as they exhaled every breath. And that phrase was this, Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Over and over again, hundreds of times in a day. And then over the years, other Christians picked up this practice and they kind of replaced some of the words and swapped in Bible verses and different promises, but they found it to be a helpful tool in just reminding themselves of the reality of God each and every moment and anchoring themselves in in the power of God's promises. Keeping something on their lips, mumbled underneath their breath with every single exhale. Again, I've shared this with you before, but, but, but for me, my breath prayer in times of temptation and struggle is Exodus chapter 14, verse 14, which says, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. If you see me walking around, mumbling to myself and talking to myself, I'm probably praying. The Lord will fight for you, you need only to be still. The Lord will fight for you, you need only to be still. The Lord will fight for you, you need only to be still. What are your temptations right now and what does your prayer underneath your breath need to be? Lord, give me strength and give me peace. Lord, quiet my urge and calm my fears. Quiet my urge and calm my fears. Help me to believe in your mercy and grace. Help me to believe in your mercy and grace. Keep the promises and the presence of God close at hand. You know, over the years, people have, have said to me something akin to this multiple times. You know, Pastor Matt, I'm... I long for the day when, when temptation won't be an issue for me. And uh, my response is usually something along these lines. So you're looking forward to heaven, right? <laughs> because temptation doesn't mean you're failing, it just means you're human. I need you to hear that. Temptation does not mean you are failing, it means you are human. Even Jesus in his perfection, he was tempted, yet without sin. It's part of the humanity of Jesus. Maturity is not the absence of temptation, it's recognizing it and being honest about it. But it's also understanding that, that even if and when you fail, it is not the end of the world. Sure, there may be worldly repercussions based on whatever temptation you've given into, but in the eyes of God, here's what's true. He will still be there to deliver you and help you the next time that temptation comes to you. And even more so, in Jesus Christ, God the Father has already delivered you from the repercussions of every temptation you've given into. Jesus Christ, who was faithful under temptation on your behalf, yet was punished as though he wasn't, 
Through his faithfulness and his punishment, he has earned peace for you. And now through faith in him, you have peace with God. So that even though you fail, even though you fall, even though you give in, it does not affect your place, your standing in the Father's family whatsoever. So even when you have fallen, you are flat on the ground because you've given in, you've given up, you've lost the battle with temptation, sin, and struggle, know this, that the Father looks at you and because Jesus Christ was faithful... The father looks at you and he says, I know you've fallen down, but I forgive you, and I love you, and you're still mine. Maturity in faith is recognizing that God's grace and mercy is bigger than you can fathom, and your weakness is deeper than you want to admit. And when you recognize both those things, You just call out to him, may your love be greater and stronger in me and through me today than my weakness, my temptation, my sin, and my struggle. Lead me not into temptation, Lord. I am craving approval. I am lonely. I am tired. But deliver me from evil. Amen. There's only one way to end this sermon, and that's to pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Join with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.